How was our New Testament created? Is there a basis for its ongoing authority? Hello and welcome to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle. And this time our very special guest on the podcast is Benjamin Laird, the author of a new InterVarsity Press IVP book on the New Testament called Creating the Canon, Composition, Controversy, and the Authority of the New Testament. Benjamin is Associate Professor of Biblical Studies at the John W. Rawlings School of Divinity at Liberty University in the States. His recent publications include The Pauline Corpus in Early Christianity and 40 Questions about the Apostle Paul. And um, Benjamin's written a fascinating book on how the Bible was put together, or the New Testament was put together. Benjamin, hi, welcome to the show. So good to be with you. Oh, it's a pleasure. Now, this absolutely intrigued me. I've, I've loved all this sort of stuff since I was at Bible college. Why, why is the formation of the New Testament still something that fascinates people, do you think? Well, I think there's different reasons. I think possibly skeptics of Christianity look at this as kind of like an angle to kind of, I don't know, get the best side of an argument and uh, maybe a way to kind of show that uh, maybe the the authority of the New Testament is in question. So I think uh, there are some who have that uh, kind of mindset. But even from those within the Christian faith, uh, it's a just a fascinating historical issue. It's something that really I was drawn to even as a high school student, college student. And for a number of years, I've been fascinated. And, and by the time you think that you've kind of got things figured out, you realize you're really just getting started. There's always new evidence to explore, new angles you haven't thought too much of. And it's something where history and theology intersect in a really unique way. So it's it's a really fascinating subject for so many reasons. I have to ask this question. How, is Dan, how has Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code contributed to the interest, do you think? Well, I don't know if it is something that... Uh, I don't know, gets a lot of attention now. It certainly did years ago when it came out. I When, when was it? Maybe at least 10 years ago, I think. Yes. Yeah, it was a while back. Sometime in the around 2005, 07, somewhere in there. So yeah, once that came out, a lot of people started to ask questions about the councils. And I think people had different ideas in the back of their head and maybe they didn't give it as much thought. And then when that book and then the subsequent movie came out, I think a lot of people are asking even more questions. So I, I think that may have been something that gave a little bit of momentum, a uh, little push to the momentum, I guess you could say. And I think it's been continuing uh, ever since. Yes, if you want to popularize something, make a movie about it, I suppose. That's the way to get it in front of the public, isn't it? Before we come and talk on about the actual formation of the canon, I want to ask you some of these questions. But you, your book throws up some fascinating um, information and thoughts about the actual writing process in the New Testament. Now, to what extent were the New Testament writings collaborative? And did the New Testament writers employ secretaries to actually do the writing? Well, to answer that question, it's it's a bit difficult to answer that question, I should say, generally, because every writer would have been a little different. Every book, uh, this, the context behind each book would have been a little different. But yes, the use of secretaries was very common, and it wasn't just a common practice for the biblical authors. It was something that was practiced in antiquity. And I think the more we've learned about book culture, just generally, the more I think uh, we've been able to understand the process even behind the New Testament writing. So the Gospels would have been produced in a very different way uh, than, say, Paul's letters. But there were uh, definitely a use. There definitely was a use of secretaries. That's an important argument that I made uh, 
in my previous book on Paul, especially, but it's something I address briefly in this volume as well. Yes, I think you, you argue that Paul would have had secretaries. In fact, we know from the New Testament right. that Paul had secretaries. What did the work of a first century secretary involve if you were working for somebody like the Apostle Paul? What did you actually do? Well, the levels of their involvement would have been a bit different depending on if you're writing a literary composition or if you're just writing a personal letter to someone. Say if you're in the first century and you, you're you on business trip and you end up in Ephesus and you want to write a, a letter back to, say, your son, you might go to a shop of a local secretary or scribe in the city of Ephesus and you might just go to him and say, hey, I need to send a letter to my son. And you would briefly tell him the major elements of that letter that you want to be included. And he may jot that down on a notebook, uh, probably a wax tablet. And then he's going to go and compose that. And then when he's done, he's going to come back. And if you were able to read, you would read it and make sure you're happy with the content. Or uh, alternatively, he could just read it back to you. And once you've uh, approved of that, then you might sign your name at the end just to authenticate it. And then it would be dispatched. So that would be typically how it works. And an average secretary would do that many, many times. A lot of people would come to his shop and he would uh, perform those types of duties. But literary compositions, you can imagine, would have been much more involved. They're much longer. They're much more sophisticated. If you have, you know, a Pauline letter, for example, there's going to be multiple quotations or allusions to the Old Testament. There also would have been the issue of uh, sources. You know, how is Paul going to know what's going on in Corinth or what's going on in Rome? Well, he has to first hear from those who were there, and that might be his own colleagues, people like Timothy and Titus going to the churches and coming back with reports, or it may be members of the, the churches there. Uh, we find a reference, for example, to members or individuals who are part of Chloe's household uh, who gave reports about what was going on in Corinth. And so someone like Paul would have had to receive information from uh, his sources, and then the compositional process would have started, and that would have involved active uh, collaboration with a, a scribe or a secretary, different terms we use for that. And uh, Paul, I believe, would have dictated the text. There's differences of opinion on that, but I find that there's a common Pauline style that uh, we can trace throughout his letters. You know, Galatians looks a lot like Romans, and Ephesians looks a lot like Colossians and so forth. And so I think Paul would have likely dictated a text. But at the very least, we can expect that he would have inspected that document very thoroughly at the end of the process. And then another kind of interesting part of this that I bring out in the book is that scribes would often produce duplicate copies of their works as well. So uh, the work actually continued longer than we might think. It wasn't as though after the scribe penned his last word, he was done and left, he would have had to reproduce that uh, within a, a short amount of time as well. So there were a lot of people that were involved. Secretaries would have formed a, a, or served a very important function, but there would have actually been many people that worked alongside of an author like Paul as well. Yes, I mean, like the slaves, the uh, secretaries sound like a sort of first century version of AI, really, with all this writing <laughs> duplicate. And some other secretaries would have been slaves. Now, that fascinated me um, when you mentioned that in your book. Yeah, that's something that may come as a surprise, because when we think of slavery today, especially in you know America, we think of slavery in you know, prior centuries in America, and we think of those who were slaves as being uneducated, illiterate, working manual labor jobs, you know, things like that. But in the Roman world, they actually served a variety of purposes. 
And slavery, if you were in slavery, you could actually be trained in some very high-end uh, occupations. We have, you know, examples of physicians and, you know, secretaries like you alluded to. And uh, many of them were very trusted uh, business associates who were given very important responsibilities. So it wasn't as though most slaves were, you know, highly educated, but there were some. If you were very wealthy, uh, you may have some slaves that you have actually trained or had received prior training, and they're going to work closely with you uh, on the composition of the text. And you actually may use them to uh, dispatch letters too. If you have a yeah. trusted slave, you may actually send them on a, a on a mission to deliver a letter and come back later on. Yes, we talked, I think, about one of Paul's letter carriers with uh, one of our other guests and uh, then got on to the, the whole subject of the Roman mail service, which fascinates me. And when I did some research, I found that the Roman mail service was incredibly fast, even by modern standards. In fact, far faster than probably our system was working during the time of COVID. So there you go. We haven't got time there to get into it, but, <laughs> but it, is, it is amazing. Now, um, before we come on to the canon, one more question about this. Was there a single original autograph of each New Testament writing, or would there have been multiple copies? I think you've already probably answered this, haven't you? Would there have been multiple copies of the writings produced at the end of the composition process? Well, actually, I would say yes to both. It, the question was kind of posed like it's going to be one or the other, but I would actually say yes to both because obviously you're going to have one manuscript that is completed before the other, even if it was a short time before the next copy was produced. But what I do bring up is that at the end of the compositional process, you're going to have, in most cases, multiple copies produced. And so oftentimes we have this, I think, kind of idea in the back of our mind that you have one manuscript that's produced, and then it may be years down the road before you know someone discovers it, and then the copying process begins. Or we may think that uh, with regard to the letters, that you have a letter like Romans composed, and then it's dispatched, and it's now out of Paul's hands, and it doesn't begin to be copied until it makes its way to the recipients, and they take a liking to it, and they begin to copy it and, and uh, disseminate it. So I actually argue that at the end of the compositional process, that is before it really enters into public circulation, but once the author was satisfied with it, you're going to have multiple copies produced all around the same time. So I actually think you could call this or describe it something like an original printing, right? We often refer to an original autograph. Maybe you could call it an original printing or you know something on those lines, uh, because I do think what we know about book culture shows that books would circulate very soon after works were produced. And you often will have the author as well, to go back to what we said about secretaries a moment ago, you will often have the author receive a copy himself. So that's at a minimum, at least two copies. And I would argue that in many cases, you'll have more than that uh, at the time of the composition's completion. And you also got the role of patrons like Theophilus with Luke. And so presumably Theophilus would have received his copy as well. Right. I kind of toy with that a little bit in the book. I'm, I referenced Theophilus. And that, that's just one of those fascinating things I wish we knew more about. I wish we could just have a podcast where we bring Luke aside and I'd have all kinds of questions for him about, uh, you know, writing culture and how his gospel is composed and acts and even his involvement with Paul. So I have a lot of questions for him. But one thing I would ask if he was sitting here with us is, you know, who was Theophilus? What role did he play in the production of Luke and Acts? 
And this is clearly not an everyday person. This is someone of uh, some reputation, it appears, as he's referred to as most excellent. And, uh, you know, a term you'd use of a dignitary of, of some sort. So I, I suspect that there's a good chance that he served as what we might call literary patron. So he may have in his own possession, he may have had the means to uh, produce multiple copies himself. Maybe he paid scribes to do this. And there was a, a mass printing at the very beginning of Luke and Acts that he financed. Or maybe he actually had slaves uh, go to work on this. Maybe he had some trained uh, secretaries in his own house. And he was uh, he, he received the, the document and gave them orders to produce this. But I think there's a good possibility that he played some kind of role in the initial uh, circulation of the of the gospel, but also acts. Yeah. How much would it have cost Benjamin to produce a gospel in the first century in terms of um, financial terms? How expensive well, would it have been? Yeah, I, I can't estimate that uh, off the top of my head, but I do know my good friend Randy Richards, if you go to... Uh, his books, he's actually estimated this. So if you go to uh, E. Randolph Richards' book, maybe Paul and Paul the, the Letter Writer, I think is the title of it. Or if you go to his introduction on Paul, I forgot the title of that, but if you go to his introduction on Paul that he co-wrote with several others, uh, he actually estimates how much it would have likely cost to produce Romans and you know, 1 Corinthians, all these different writings. And it was uh, it was very, very expensive. And if we have a letter just like, uh, you know, second or third John, you might say, well, that's not a big deal. You could, uh, you know, write that up after you hear it in church one day. And that's that's the case. But if you have a gospel or a long epistle like Romans or first Corinthians, that would have been quite a process. Materials were more difficult to obtain, more costly. Uh, also, just handwriting manuscripts is a very time consuming task. And so. Yeah, the, the cost of that would have been expensive. Now, that doesn't mean that the authors were very wealthy and, you know, were independently wealthy and could finance this. I, I imagine that there were a lot of Christians early on who were associates of Paul and the apostles. And I think a lot of them, possibly even Tursus, mentioned his name earlier, possibly someone like him just volunteered his time and did this uh, as, a, as a ministry, essentially, to the church. Okay, now we get to the really um, meaty bits. Not that that wasn't meaty, but uh, how was the New Testament canon formed? And um, would Christians in the late first century or second century, for example, would they have known the same New Testament that we do? Good question. Yeah, I would. I would first of all emphasize that the New Testament. I mention this all to my all the time to my students. The New Testament is really a collection of collections. We know it's a collection. But it's more of a collection of collections than it is a collection of individual writings. And that has to do with the process. And so I actually think it was a very natural process. There's different ways we can look at this. I think one of the common ideas that people have is that maybe a council in the 4th century or 5th century, they ha they're undergoing all kind of external threats or maybe even internal threats with the question of heresy. And so they had to just make a once-for-all decision and they all come together and uh, have, a, have a great meeting where they go through all these writings and they decide then and there which writings are going to be canonized, which are going to be recognized by the church Catholic as authoritative scripture. So it's really just kind of a one-time uh, decision and just, you know, there's kind of like a big bang kind of thing where it's just there all of a sudden. On the other hand, you could argue that it was kind of like a one-by-one, one. It's, it's kind of like addition. 
And so one letter at a time, one gospel at a time was recognized until we finally end up with 27. And then it's it's just kind of uh, recognized at that point, uh, widely affirmed at that point. I would say that it's a very natural process. And to understand how the canon formed, you have to understand how the smaller canonical collections were formed. Now, I'm thankful this is receiving a lot of attention now in scholarship. There's been several books in the last even two years that have been published that uh, emphasize this point. But essentially, you have these foundational blocks, if we could kind of think of it that way. We have a fourfold gospel, we have Acts, we have the Pauline epistles, we have the Catholic epistles, and Revelation. Revelation sometimes circulated on its own, other times it seems to have circulated with the Catholic epistles and kind of formed a, a larger collection. So we have about four or five pieces, and really it's it's these pieces coming together that form what we call the New Testament today. So I don't think it was just kind of a one-time decision where hundreds of writings are are considered and we just uh, have 27 kind of went out. Uh, I think we actually have the story of these smaller collections. And when the New Testament came together, when we think about the New Testament coming together, that's really that, that's really the same kind of question as, well, when was the when did the final building blocks or foundational pieces come together? Once we have the last piece, the last collection formed, that's really when the New Testament as a whole is really formed as well. So I think a collection of collections is the right way to think about this. And once we understand that, we know that it's actually a very natural process. Now, how much do we know about uh, which books were were thought of as authoritative early on in the early centuries? I mean, what are some of the important early canonical lists, for example? I mean, the, there's the Muratorian fragment, isn't there, for one? Right. And that's a very important one. And it's typically dated to the second century. There have been some since the 1970s who have challenged the traditional viewpoint on the Muratorian fragment and argued that it's most likely a fourth century uh, list. And the reason why is because if we go to all those canonical lists that we have, the other early lists, they all begin in the fourth century. Well, that's because the councils began the fourth century. So you get to the fourth century and you see all these lists. And so some scholars have argued that, well, actually, it's best to put the Muratorian fragment there. My problem with that is a couple of things. There's, there's internal evidence that would suggest that it was written much earlier it refers to a, a pious who and describes him as one who lived in our times. And that uh, definitely was not the fourth century. That would be like if today I, I mentioned, you know, the time of, I don't know, Andrew Jackson being in our day, you know, to use an American reference there. And clearly we're, we're well beyond that. But uh, second century makes the most sense as far as the content of this, the wording of it, but also it leaves out certain works. It doesn't mention the full 27. And so I would actually argue that it would seem out of place in the fourth century because all the lists we have in the fourth century are much more comprehensive. And so they actually will list many of them 26 or 27 writings. And uh, the Muratorian Fragment, on the other hand, only mentions, if I can remember correctly, 22. So it actually leaves out five. So I actually think it was uh, this was composed earlier, probably the second half of the second century. And uh, that it's been threatened. That date has been challenged, I should say. But uh, I think most are coming around to the idea that the traditional date of the second century is, is the best date. But beyond that, we have a lot of uh, Greek manuscripts. So we have early uh, documents that have uh, the biblical writings preserved. And so that shows us what they were reading, what they were circulating. That's important. We also have, of course, the writings of the church fathers, 
So if they consistently refer to the four Gospels and treat them as authoritative scripture, well, that's going to be very important. And that's going to tell us how they treated the scriptures, how they viewed them. So we don't always have a, you know, carefully articulated list like we might want. And, you know, where someone at the end of the first century says, I'm going to carry my New Testament with me to church. And it has these writings and just lays them all out. I suppose the Miratorian fragment is the closest we have to that. But in most cases, they're referring to works individually. But you can tell that the works we have today in our New Testament, those are the same books that were read very widely in the first three centuries. The works that circulate the most frequently and the works that were constantly uh, viewed as authoritative scripture, even from an early period of time. Yes, and and uh, we have various church fathers mentioning lists of books, don't we, from the, I think if I remember rightly, from the second century. And am I also correct in vaguely remembering from my studies years and years ago that the letters of Clement of Rome in the 90s also include quite a lot of quotations that we would recognize as quotations from our New Testament. So he's clearly he's clearly got something like our New Testament there in front of him or in his mind as early as the 90s which is quite staggering, really, because the quotations are recognisable as quotes from our New Testament. Oh, gosh, where do we, we could talk for hours about all this. What role did the creation of the criterion of apostleship play in the formation of the canon, Benjamin? Well, I think that was crucial. I think most people recognise that, but there's been different ways to understand apostolic authority. We often use an adjective. We might say it's apostolic, right? And that adjective has been used in different ways for a long time. But I think that uh, it's something we need to go back and revisit. Uh, I think, again, I think we affirm that the scriptures are apostolic. But there's been a effort, I think, an effort in recent years to separate apostolic authorship from apostolic scripture that uh, you can have a writing, say, to use an example, uh, the pastoral epistles. One might say, well, 1 Timothy is apostolic, but still deny Pauline authorship. And that is a bit counterintuitive to many, because you might think, well, if it's apostolic, it means it goes back to the apostles. But the term has actually been used, in, in especially in the last couple uh, decades, uh, just to refer to something that is, I would say, commensurate, that is... Uh, consistent with the teachings of the apostles. So if you have a writing that, uh, for example, has a high Christology or emphasizes uh, the doctrine of uh, justification, then you might say, well, that's an apostolic writing uh, because it's consistent with what Paul taught and the apostles taught and Christ himself taught. So therefore it's apostolic. Uh, But I would argue that in the early church, when you go back and look at the debates about the canon, they debated more than anything else, the authorship. And so that was really the issue that made the reception of some writings a bit more uh, turbulent, I guess you could say, than others. Uh, When you think about Hebrews, for example, there were debates about its theology, uh, of course, but there were also also many debates about its authorship. And we find that there were some early on who rejected the authority of Hebrews because they were not convinced that Paul wrote it. And an example of that would be an individual named Gaius of Rome, who argued that Paul only wrote to seven churches. So obviously, if you include Hebrews, that would be eighth. And that's uh, inconsistent with the tradition that Paul wrote to seven. So he excluded it uh, from the Pauline corpus, that it wasn't uh, authentic scripture, authoritative scripture. So authorship was not the only issue, but it was the primary battleground 
And it was the works that had apostolic origin that the church believed could go back to the apostles that they gravitated to. And also, again, if there was a work where there was some type of question about who the author was, that would be a work that would take much longer to receive universal recognition then. So authorship is is important because it uh, relates to, I would say even today, it relates to the basis for the Kansas Authority. But historically, it also explains to us why these books were selected in the first place. Because what we don't have are just classics, right? Now I would say Romans is a classic and Matthew's a classic, et cetera. But they didn't just at the end of, say, the fourth or fifth century say, what are the best writings that, you know, the best pieces of literature, the most uh, just thrilling books, you know, what are classics? And, you know, pick books like, I don't know, something like uh, like my English teacher might do. Well, we need to pick, you know, Great Expectations of Dickens or something. But instead, they gravitated naturally to the works that were written by the apostles. And so that's important theologically for us. I think we can base our understanding of their of their authority on their apostolic origin, but also historically it explains why they gravitated towards those texts and then why some were disputed as well. And then also why books outside the canon were rejected. Mm. At what point was, can we talk about a point where the canon was fully and finally authorized? Well, in a very loose way, I guess. Uh, it's difficult to use the word finalized if we mean you know, there's some kind of decision made that everyone was on board with and there's complete unanimous consent. We have widespread recognition of the canon, I think, by the second half of the fourth century. You could possibly even go back to the beginning of the fourth century, but you still have disputes about certain works even long after that. So it, it's similar to, uh, you know, Council of Nicaea that, uh, you know, emphasized the Christology of uh, emphasize some Christological issues, uh, emphasized a high Christology. Well, there were still disputes about the nature of Jesus long after the fourth century and even today, right? So it was finalized in the sense that in the fourth century, we have a widespread recognition of the 27, but that doesn't mean that uh, there was one council responsible for persuading Christians or that there wasn't any dispute after that. So, but the fourth century is where you find a, a rather strong consensus. Mm, fascinating stuff. Benjamin Laird, the author of this new IVP book called Creating the Canon, Composition, Controversy and the Authority of the New Testament. Benjamin, thank you so much. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and to take care of things behind the scenes. Benjamin, thank you. Absolutely. Pleasure to be here. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.